0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The last several weeks I've described the wrong depiction along with the right depiction of the atonement, the wrong understanding that we often get. Is called Penal Substitution. One of the key characteristics, though, of the biblical understanding that we've been emphasizing over and against this misunderstanding is the kind of immediate and practical difference that the work of Christ can have in our lives. And this is true, especially of our topic today, the difference that hope can play in our lives now. Hope is thematic in Paul's resolution to the problem of sin that he's describing in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Look at Romans 8, 17 to 24, and let's read that section together, and we see how this is really the central part of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation wakes eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, for having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as children, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? And so chapter 8 of Romans marks the transition in Paul's argument to the description of this alternative understanding. He's described in chapter 7 the failed human subject. 7 7 is focused primarily on the isolated individual before the law and its continual reference, some 20 references to I. And chapter 8 then displaces that and speaks of a corporate identity of hope. Hope in the Holy Spirit, which we see in this verse, has cosmic implications. Those in Christ Jesus, Paul describes as, they have hope residing in creation itself. And it's interesting here, the hope is, first of all, the hope of God that we participate in. And Paul describes hope as residing in creation, that creation waits in eager expectation. And Paul's life in the eye, then, I think, is displaced. You know, if we had to say, what is the theme of The sinful self, I think it's desire, it's angst, it's this agony. And the theme of the resolution to that is life of hope. No longer focused on the scene, and the Greek doesn't come out so much here in the English, but all of 7-7 is a visual depiction. And in chapter 8 he says, well you can't see this thing. Hope that is seen is not hope at all. And it brings about then, it still uses the word image or imagery. In verse 29, he says that we're conformed to the image of Christ. But of course, this image is not one that we're conformed to visually, but auditorily. It's a reconstitution of the subject on the basis of the word of God. And so in Paul's depiction of the sinful self, there is a split The law kind of holds out this fullness of being, promising life, and there is continual desire and frustration and agonistic struggle. And Paul describes this as a life in the flesh, as slavery to fear. Paul's resolution to fear, the resolution to frustration, his resolution really to the ego, the I, is life in the spirit, which he describes in this key category of hope. I think hope is key. Hope directly counters the spectral self-relationship of the fleshly ego. For in this hope, he says, we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. I think that's the shift that quite literally, psychologically, we shift from a kind of visual understanding an objective understanding of ourselves to this idea of conformed in the body of Christ. If the object of hope is in sight, well, it just sets up desire. That's not hope at all. Hope, by definition, then falls outside of our visual relationship, the bodily image, or the image that we see in the mirror, as it reaches forward to that which does not appear. And so where the split focuses on The split in the self, the law of the body, the law of the mind, is focused on desire. That's the theme of 7-7. The theme of hope, I think, directly displaces desire. There's the prospect of the unseen image of Christ that does not misrecognize our mortal body. As we were discussing today, we fully accept our mortality in hope. Because we presume, Paul says in verse 11, that through the Spirit the body is raised. The body is resurrected. How are you saved? Through bodily resurrection. With the displacement of desire, with hope, and the overcoming of this kind of alienation, we are adopted. This is the means of adoption. And these are the requisites for an account of redemption. And when we say, are you saved? I think this is one of the key things. We have hope. The subject of desire and the subject of hope then constitute the two alternatives. And so we can live a life of continual lack, of continual desire. Or we can have hope in the life of the Spirit, which the goal is to be conformed. That's what we're continually being transformed, Paul says, into his image. He'll talk elsewhere that the transformation of our mind... Or in Corinthians, you'll talk about a transformation from glory to glory that just continues forever. And we're involved, he describes, in achieving his likeness. Look at verse 4. That we begin to walk as he walked. You remember the book by Sheldon, you know, that in his steps, that we're enabled to do what we could not do before. Paul describes that I do what I don't want to, but now we're enabled to walk as he walked. That we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, he says in verse 5. That we can actively submit ourselves then to this righteousness. Righteousness is not just theoretical. We can really do this thing. And it displaces then this kind of incapacity, this static orientation to death that we've accepted the mortal body in hope for through the spirit of sonship he says in verse 15 we have a direct relationship to God we cry out Abba Father and the one subject is the subject of life I believe the other subject is a subject of death and so Paul's description of hope allows I think for a full engagement with life even in its suffering. You know there's suffering in both chapter 7 the life of sin produces one kind of suffering but there's still suffering in chapter 8 but it's of a very different kind of suffering. The suffering and death are no longer definitive they're no longer determinative of the life that we have in hope. I think that the life In chapter 7, it's defined by suffering, by agonistic struggle. But in 8.18, he says, The present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, as neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God. Verse 38, Hope embraces change as it's focused on the fulfillment of a future purpose which cannot be obtained within the framework of this present world. I think it becomes possible that we experience the changes in history, the natural aging that some of you are experiencing. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we can embrace that. We can ful- you know, fully embrace this understanding and not be threatened by our clearly failing life. And so in 820, he uses language here, it directly counters futility. And he's used the word in the 125, he's used the word matiotis, and it's very similar, a very similar word that he uses here for a lie and a futility is what he's described as the world is subjected to this futility. And the hopeless futility of chapter 7, you know, there's no relief for it. It's just futility. Or Genesis 3, I think now we have the answer. There's futility, but Paul says the creation is subjected to this futility in hope. There's a full acknowledgement of the suffering in the world. This echoes and resolves the the suffering that's depicted there in 7, but also the original lie In Genesis, that there is a cosmic futility that was to be found in humanity. But now freedom from the lie, freedom from futility, from the powers of sin, death, and corruption, it's realized, not completely. I don't mean that it's fulfilled, but it's proleptically realized in hope. The law of sin and death is an imminent law. That's the law we face, but now we have a greater law. And it contains hope. The law of life in the Spirit. Those are the two laws that Paul talks about. Chapter 7, the law of sin and death. Chapter 8, the law of life in the Spirit that subsumes the law of sin and death in this transcended hope. And so Paul fully acknowledges the emptiness, the futility, the evil. I think that is fully there but it's countered by hope in which the futility is accounted for and it's allowed for even, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own choice, but through the choice of the one who subjected it in hope. God allowed for it, but also God hopes. I think this is interesting because I think our hope is actually a participation In the fulfilled hope. The the hope that's being fulfilled in God. The hope here is not human hope. But it's God's. Which accounts for a kind of ontology. That we encounter in this world. In Romans 7. And now we've resolved that ontology. Paul allows for openness. For suffering. But he pictures it from a God's eye point of view. Look at uh, verses 29 to 30 that there is now this perspective that all of history actually falls between the call and accomplishment of his purposes. That God has predestined. What has he predestined? Oh, he's predestined the cosmos in Christ, in hope. Not only the individual subject, but all of creation, in verse 22, is undergoing a redemptive rebirth. There is groaning, as in the pains of childbirth. And of course we know that birth is one of the most painful of experiences. Some of us know it better than others. But the idea is that at the end of the suffering you get a baby. And that's the picture of hope. That there is a birth in process. There is not an abolition of the present world or the present suffering so that heaven might take its place now, but a transformation on the order of birth in which the pains of suffering are fulfilling a purpose. And don't misunderstand me here. I think suffering never innately, inherently has purpose. But as in childbirth, that suffering, though, leads to something greater. With the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, Paul says in verse 23, the purpose of creation's suffering will have appeared and hope's longing will be fulfilled. You know, the labor of the ego, the I, the sinful self, it's a futility that has no purpose. It's not going anywhere. But the labor of hope is a life of redemption. And so Paul deliberately sets the whole process of cosmic and human history between these two poles, the pretemporal purpose and final glorification as the completion of that purpose. Hope has at its center a certainty based on the shared perspective. This is not a scientific certainty, this is not a hard headed dogmatic certainty, but this is the certainty of faith and hope that God's will stands over all, in control of all, and that his purpose to bring his creation and creatures to their full intended potential, that we hope, we know, is undefeatable. And so the hope which Paul is describing embraces all things as it transcends the futility of the material creation, the futility of the eye, the creation groans. The hope is not merely an anticipation, but it's already a new beginning in process. The birth is already going on. We see that in the rebirth in baptism with Christ through the Spirit with the Father. Chapter 8 is very Trinitarian. Every person of the Trinity, their work is depicted. It is the hope of God, the Father, who has given the first fruits of the Spirit so as to conform into the likeness of his Son. There is the Trinitarian picture. You know, Paul describes in Corinthians, there's faith, hope, and love. I think sometimes hope gets shortchanged in light of faith and love. But the three are necessarily linked. In other words, I think if we have faith and love, apart from hope, they're not biblical faith and love. Without hope, faith and love are unbalanced. Maybe they're impossible, or at least of a different meaning than biblical faith and love. And so, what does hope bring into faith and love? I think that the picture is that it brings something beyond the temporal, beyond limited possibilities. That is there. Hope is unseen. That is, it's not yet a reality, but it's becoming a reality. It's bringing into the finite world, the eternal world. It's hope, which specifically contains the biblical element of a continual dying. I think that's the futility here of passing through death, of groaning to an expectant life in God, which is no longer grounded in the delimitations of death, There is a cure to hope, the cure of fear, the cure of, I think, the curtailments, the limitations of reason, the cure of a kind of earthly perspective, which I think, you know, there is earthly versions of all three of these, but I think biblical hope ensures the faith and love of a biblical understanding. Faith and love might speak of an ordinary, finite degree of possibility. But hope surpasses what is possible. Can we say it that way? Jesus will say it that way. It clings to what would otherwise be impossible. And this can be easily demonstrated. You know, the qualifiers which we could add to faith and love, we could say limited, temporal, finite. We could say that about faith and love. They may be the norm, but what hope does, it extends faith and love to the unlimited, to the awe temporal, to the infinite. You might speak of a dogmatic faith. Karl Barth wrote volumes and volumes called the Church Dogmatics. I don't believe you could ever speak of a dogmatic hope. Hope, by its very nature, cannot be paired with a hard headed knowing. You know, the the very point of all of the biblical end-time imagery, the imagery of heaven, is not to elicit some sort of rational certainty. It's not telling us, oh, the streets will be composed of this grade of gold. Hope is the reworking of the imagination on the basis of what is not approachable by sight. Hope takes us beyond the temporal, and it's suffocating rational possibilities. And the entire point of all of the end time imagery is to bring about a reworked imagination. I don't think it resolves all of our problems, but we understand and hope that there is this resolution. Faith and love might be conceived of apart from anticipation. Hope is anticipation. It is expectation. Rightly understood, though, faith and love are grounded in this expectation of hope. Both speak of a future in which they are proven to have been worthy. You know, we speak of hopeless love. People say, oh, I've fallen in love hopelessly. Well, it sounds like a sickness to me. As there is no expectation of a brighter, fulfilled future for the beloved. I think that's hopeful love. Hopeful love presumes the expectation of the best for the beloved. So too, hopeless faith would be a static, time-bound belief which does not take us anywhere else. It does not transport us elsewhere. But hope then brings an eternal dynamism, the future ever transforming the past and present. That is hope. Hope speaks of a living possibility imputed into faith and love. It makes them active, alive. Living by faith and love is the dynamism that hope delivers. And so living out this hope, the certainty you know that Hebrews talks about, Hebrews 11, brings the eternal into time. Not as a fully realized achievement, but as an actively lived possibility. It's in hope that human experience of time is transformed by eternity as the eternal possibilities open a way forward. And so where faith and love might be constrained by the possible, hope makes for unqualified, impossible love and a seemingly impossible faith. As with God, Jesus says, all things are possible. Jesus tells us in Matthew nineteen twenty six. this is the conversation with the rich young ruler. Uh, and the, by the way, they're discussing goodness. You know, how do you be good? And Jesus tells the rich young man, well, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, the disciples begin to grumble and they said, Well, there's no hope for any of us. They were very astonished. They say, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Given the circumstance of the world, you can't thread the eye of a needle with a camel. Given the circumstance of the world, I guess, the rich are hopeless. And goodness is unachievable. And that's the question you know originally prompted the conversation: that reason cannot resolve the problem of evil even in its conception of the goodness of God. Hope leaps over the impossible. having faith in goodness and unqualified hope and love. I guess there's bad faith, there's ill-conceived love, and maybe that's the norm. But hope is hope in an impossible goodness. Hope implies a confidence in a good outcome, which is not constrained by the necessities of this world. This is my title from Romans 4.18, which actually precedes this. And it describes hope beyond hope. That is, there's normal hope, but we're beyond the normal hope. And it's talking about Abraham. He's faced with the impossible, irresolvable situation, apart from divine intervention. It says, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And so Abraham's journey is the earthly expectancy of propagating his name is impossible. It's hopeless. That's where hope begins, when the situation appears hopeless. Biblical hope begins. It's not simply his faith, isolated from hope, that's exceptional. His hope translates his future expectation into his moving forward. He goes into the unseen country, the far country. Faith apart from hope, I don't think he would go anywhere. It's a static thing, but hope enlivens the possibility into the present. So that his present walk, and of course thinking here of our walk with Christ, it's energized by this possible end. And so what is relinquished in the process, you know, the impossibilities, the hardships, the earthly desires, Abraham's childlessness, his homelessness, his old age, That would normally constitute despair. And that is precisely where hope kicks in, where it begins. The divine hope, the hope beyond hope, over and against human hope begins at that point. There's no natural explanation. There's no rational way forward. At that point where earthly expectations have been exhausted and despair would normally begin, eternal hope starts there. And so the hardships that Abraham faced, the frustrations, are these really obstacles? The suffering. These aren't obstacles, but in a strange way, they're the ingredients of the hope beyond hope. The impossibility of his circumstance, it gives him hope. It's not an obstacle to his faith, but his faith is created then through this situation, grounded in the hope of eternity. It keeps him moving. So maybe this is why faith and love, apart from hope, they not only do not imply suffering, but faith and love may be challenged by suffering. But hope, I think, presumes suffering. But this suffering is rendered secondary, unimportant. And this is what Paul says in our concluding section here in chapter 8, verse 823. Look at this verse. We ourselves, he indicates, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. There's this expectant suffering. You know, think of the suffering of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? That's a completely different thing. Here, Paul in 8.35, pictures tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. You know, in some ways that sounds a lot worse than that suffering in chapter 7. And yet Paul says that these outward forms of suffering are no obstacle to the love of God grounded in hope. Thus the perseverance of hope. I think it presumes that what we're persevering through is suffering. But the suffering itself, it points somewhere else. It points beyond itself. I don't think faith and love apart from hope do this. But the presumption of a persevering hope through suffering then gives us a different quality of faith and love. And so suffering and sacrifice, they're inscribed in sinful desire. The body of death. But Paul says in light of the glory of God, suffering becomes something The hardship, the tangible realms, the persecution, the famine, the nakedness. That in light of God's glory, these things don't count. For your sake we face death all day long. And of course Paul will die a martyr's death. How did he do it? I think this is how he did it. Paul declares the settled conviction that the suffering of this present time are not of like value to the coming glory to be revealed to us. The subject in Christ can expect to suffer as he did and rejoice in that suffering as there is now a capacity to take up the suffering of the world and to bear it in the suffering of redemption. That's what Paul describes, that we've joined in the suffering redemption of Christ. The groaning and anxious longing of creation on the order of childbirth bears fruit, the fruit of redemption. And so for Paul, life in the Spirit resolves the inward struggle, the I. the conflict is halted, the hope we have in Christ is giving birth to the positive peace of the Spirit, the new life of hope in Christ. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship.